During the Holocaust, an industrialist uses his money and influence to save the lives of over a thousand Jews. This is a heavy episode, so we're not going to do the usual tease. Just join us and listen as we discuss all the reasons why Schindler's List stands the test of time. James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time. I'm James Brief, and joining me as always is Alan Noah. How are you, Al? I am doing okay. Uh, usually, this is the part where you have a little small talk. Uh, you know, what's going on with Star Wars and uh, Nintendos and you know other things that maybe people our age you know love to talk about? But uh, yeah, we're we're not going to really talk about that kind of stuff today. No, you're right. It doesn't really feel like it is relevant today. And I just want to take a quick minute to say why I wanted to talk about Schindler's List right now. First, it's the 30th anniversary. This movie came out in December 1993. Listeners of the show know that I'm a sucker for movie anniversaries. Also, though, there is the elephant in the room, which is everything that's happening in Israel and Gaza. And like, I don't want to talk about all that. I don't want that to be what this episode is about. That's not what this episode is about. This episode is about Schindler's List and it's about the Holocaust and that's depressing enough as it is. But the thing about everything that's happening right now is that we've learned that anti-Semitism is alive and fucking well. It unfortunately has stood the test of time and it cast a shadow over this episode and life as a Jew and so much in the world right now. And quite frankly, I've really enjoyed getting together with you, James, and recording episodes that have nothing to do with this. And it's been a nice distraction. And we've been able to talk about scary movies in October and random movies in November and everything. And it's been great. And I love it. Uh, but I feel like this is a relevant movie to discuss now with so much anti-Semitism in the Middle East, in the United States, in my town here on Long Island, at our former alma mater at Cornell. It's just fucking everywhere. And I knew that uh, Steven Spielberg made this movie the same year he made Jurassic Park, and it was kind of like a, a two-hander for him, and he was working so hard on these two huge movies. But I didn't know something until I was reading about it earlier today that Spielberg was kind of circling this movie, this project, for a decade. And the reason he waited was because he felt like he wasn't ready as a filmmaker and he needed to mature and grow his skills and then, you know, in 1993, when he did make it, he felt like a, a more accomplished filmmaker. Also, though, one thing that motivated him to make the movie when he did was that there was a rise in anti-Semitism and neo-Nazism and Holocaust deniers in the United States. That was happening 30 years ago in the 90s that motivated him to want to make this movie. And it kind of makes me feel like they should re-release Schindler's List now. They don't have to say it's because of 
what's happening in the Middle East. They could just say, hey, 30th anniversary, we're putting it back in theaters. Do free screenings. Like, why the fuck not? But yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of shit, anti-Semitism specifically, that really does stand the test of time, which is why we're talking about this movie today. Well, unfortunately, this just isn't a, a new thing. The slaughter of the Jewish people has just happened again and again and again, empire after empire after empire. We've gone every century with a Jewish slaughter. And then 23 years into this millennium, another slaughter of Jews, 1,200 people, just innocent people killed because they're Jewish. And it's just not a new story. And uh, uh, the cynic in me says, this is not the last story. We we can only uh, try to say never again and at least educate people. Yeah. And, you know, of course, it maybe goes without saying, but uh, I'll say it anyway. Of course, my heart breaks for everyone who is a victim of prejudice, intolerance, not just Jews. This hits close to home for me as a as a Jew, and I'm guessing for you too. But of course, it's a bigger problem in terms of hatred, bigotry, intolerance that is awful and everywhere. And it's a horrible, disgusting thing, whether it's directed at anyone. You know, I have a friend who is a Jew from Russia. And, you know, he lives here on Long Island now. And we were talking about this recent wave of anti-Semitism. And what he said was interesting and heartbreaking. But he was like, you know, remember a few years ago when it was the immigrants and then it was Black Lives Matter protesters and then it was trans kids? Well, now it's the Jews again. And, you know, it'll be someone else eventually, and then it'll be someone else eventually, and then it'll come back to the Jews. It always does. And, you know, he was very matter-of-fact about it, the way he was talking about it. I was like, ugh, what a fucking gut punch, because I know he's right. It's a shitty, fucking awful thing. But let's get into Schindler's List, the movie, because as I'm sure everyone knows, it's Steven Spielberg's award-winning, Oscar-winning film about the Holocaust, which centers around German businessman Oscar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson. At first, Schindler embraces the Nazi party to gain political favor and to acquire Jews who will work in his factory as slaves. With the help of his accountant, Isaac Stern, played by Ben Kingsley, Schindler builds a profitable business. He's able to turn a blind eye towards the atrocities that he sees at first. SS Lieutenant Amon Goth is a particularly brutal killer. Schindler bribes Goth and anyone else he can in order to save the lives of his factory workers, over 1,000 innocent men, women, and children. So this movie was a huge smash hit with uh, the critics. I know that it was a runaway that year at the Oscars. It won a ton of awards. Was it a big hit at the theaters too? Oh, yeah. Uh, This film was made on a modest uh, $22 million budget. And uh, Universal, uh, like you said, uh, it was kind of partnered with uh, Jurassic Park. And it opened on uh, December 17th, 1993. But that was really for awards purposes, like uh, a lot of Oscar films do. It opened wide uh, on January 14th, 1994. And it opened number one. And it later was number one again on April 1st, 1994, after the Oscar win. It wound up making 
96 million dollars domestically so almost four times his budget and 322 million dollars worldwide a huge huge success wow i even looked at the budget for jurassic park i wonder if it made more you know uh you know worldwide to budget on a scale than uh jurassic park as an investment technically dollar for dollar right 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 because jurassic park probably made more money but it also cost a lot more money to make so this is one of those rare movies that was a critical and commercial success. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it won Best Picture, and this finally won Spielberg as Best Director Oscar. This movie really cemented Spielberg as more than a blockbuster director. And yes, he had directed other movies that weren't just, you know, the Indiana Jones movies. I mean, E.T. and uh, Close Encounters are serious movies, too, But yeah, this was the one that really cemented him as not just a director, but a filmmaker. One thing I love about this film is that pretty much, at least to me, everyone's an unknown. I had never heard of any of these people when I first saw it. Ben Kingsley, I didn't see Gandhi. Liam Neeson, never heard of him. Wait, you didn't see Darkman? Probably, but you can't see his face. Like, uh, you know. Well, like in the first scene you can, but yeah, okay. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be like, oh my God, it's Darkman, the guy who's speaking with a German accent in black and white that I've kind of maybe seen once at that point. Right, right. Um, uh, one question is, uh, is it Ray Fiennes or Ralph Fiennes? Ray. But it's spelled Ralph. Correct. I guess that's European in some way, or is that just like how he does it? Uh, he's English. I don't know if that's how all British people say the word Ralph, but um, I know I've seen interviews where he is Ray Fines. Yeah, because there's other Fines. The other Fines are they're related to him, right? I think so. Yeah, Joseph Fines. Yeah, uh, I think Joseph. Yes, I think there was something where Liam Neeson is Qui Gon Jinn, and Ray Fines' brother was almost Obi Wan in the prequels, and you know wasn't. But uh, I feel like I, I saw that bit of trivia somewhere. So I, I think you're right. You know, um, I don't know how you grew up with the Holocaust, but in my family, I mean, it was just talked about, not daily, but um, my grandfather and and grandmother were in it. I mean, like my grandfather had the tattoo. Uh, Grandma was, she was in the women's Auschwitz. By the time she got in, they they weren't tattooing anymore. Uh, My grandfather's first wife and daughter, so my mother's half-sister, they they were killed in Auschwitz. So my grandfather went with his whole family. My mother said she always grew up, and she would say where she would hide when the Nazis came. She was born in uh, Germany, but when they immigrated to America, they they were in Buffalo, New York. And she's talking about where in Buffalo, New York, and specifically the laundry hamper, that's where she was going to hide from the Nazis when the Nazis came. Jesus. You know, they were just so convinced that, that it was just going to happen. And uh, yeah, it was just something you talked about. That's really interesting. I did not have that family background. My grandparents were all here in the States during World War II. So it wasn't talked about in that way. I learned about it in, in Hebrew school and in school, but it was not as prevalent in my childhood And I think that there is something very different about reading something in a book and hearing something taught in school versus seeing it in a movie. And this movie is visceral. 
this movie really puts you into what life was like in Poland, in these ghettos, in the concentration camps, in the factories. You can really dissect the techniques that Spielberg did, you know, with the handheld cameras and the black and white, the close shots, and the fact that it was made on a a small budget. Like you said, you know, it was done on a compressed schedule. You just feel what these people felt in a way that really makes these stories come alive, for better and worse. And when did you first see this film? I don't remember. That's a really good question, and I was thinking about it. I can't imagine that I saw it in the theater. Maybe I did. Maybe after my parents took me to see Jurassic Park repeatedly in the theater, they were like, okay, now you're going to go and sit and watch Schindler's List. That's kind of what I did with uh, my son Eli the other night. He wanted to watch something else. I'm like, no, no, we're going to sit down and watch Schindler's List. I'm pretty sure this was only the second time I've ever watched this movie ever in my life start to finish. How about you? When did you see it? I saw this in the theater, and I went with my friend uh, Joey Jaffe. He was uh, my friend from class, and my mom was more than happy to take us. She gave us a little extra money, and she was like, go to Bennigan's afterwards, because my mom was like, you know, you two go, go get some chicken fingers afterwards and, you know, sodas. And she was very happy we were going. I think this is the third time I've ever seen it because okay. I knew I saw it then. I'd seen it once more. I don't remember when. I distinctly remember when I was a kid walking out of this uh, movie theater. And I mean, I thought it was brilliant and I, wow, what, what a film. But it was Definitely not the film that I was expecting. Oh, what were you expecting? I had read some books before, and the books I read were all first uh, first person accounts. And uh, you read like Anne Frank and Ellie Wiesel's Night and uh, Heim Potok. And uh, my grandmother, she wrote a book. Um, I'll plug it. It was by my uh, grandmother Regina Frankel, and it's called Adolescence in Auschwitz: A Teenager Survives Hitler's Holocaust. But uh, you know, you read so many of them. And you hear these depictions of just the most horrible things. And my point being, this is not the film I was expecting or what I thought was going to be made. Seeing it now as a, for the third time, I mean, it was such a gut punch that I really didn't get as a kid. And I would have made basically not a Spielberg Holocaust film. I would have made an Eli Roth Holocaust film. I mean, it would have been the brutality of it and the depictions of people being gassed. And there are a lot of people that get shot in the head with one of those uh, P-38s. And when they fall, you wait for the blood to, to fall out of their head. But when you're reading these books and, you know, they're going to describe it and they're going to describe the girl next to you, what happened to her and the boy next to you. And they explain to you that every other person in line is killed. And there's a part where I think it's at the liquidation uh, where they just line up these six men and then they take a P-38 and it's almost like a game. And you can almost... You can almost imagine that the Nazis are betting how many bullets this is going to go through. And it goes through four of them, and they collapse. And then they just pop off the next two, you know, fifth and sixth guy having an additional seven, eight seconds of excruciating terror. 
But I, I mean, yeah. that's the stuff that I thought I was going to see. I understand what Spielberg was trying to do now. You see the uh, depiction of the Germans having this beautiful gala in a, in a villa above a concentration camp. I see now, of course, the brilliance of, of what Spielberg's doing and how it's much more effective than just a two-hour snuff film. When it got to Auschwitz, for example, I was expecting to see the horror and the death and in an almost brilliant way. Just Auschwitz is the only scene of hope in a weird way because these these Jews think they're about to get gassed and then they actually in the shower which probably was used for gas in Zyklon B uh, and you know you got to see what these women were going through in their moments before they thought they were going to die that's what hundreds thousands and hundreds of thousands of people went through I thought we were going to see that and I didn't get it as a kid why Spielberg didn't show as much gore as he did and now I see it was more the evil and the gore and he didn't need the the uh, Eli Roth kind of gore. In specific regards to the gas chamber in Auschwitz, look, I didn't want to see it. I hadn't seen this movie in so long. I wasn't sure how this scene was going, and I thought that they were going to be gassed. And the fact that they didn't is great because I didn't want to see it, and it's a good thing that these women in real life were spared. I did kind of think, though, that in a world where Holocaust deniers are a thing and when anyone can look at any evidence and say, well, it's not really as bad as people say, I was like, you know, maybe he should have shown it. And not in a graphic way, not in a a, a horrific way, but maybe there is some value in showing audiences that, yeah, people were fucking gassed. And I'm not trying to, like, critique the movie and give Spielberg notes from my fucking basement. Like, I I don't want to be that person. There are other shots where you see the smokestack and the very, very, very strong implication is that smoke is Jews. It is bodies. It is corpses. That is what they are looking at and they know what it is. And so you don't need to see it. Also, you know, you don't want to make a movie that panders specifically to the denialists because they're going to fucking deny it anyway. Like, what's the point, right? Like, you you don't want to make a movie for them because it's pointless. It's utterly, utterly pointless. And I get that. But that was just one thing that kind of stuck out to me about that scene. I mean, I completely agree with you. I understand now you need a little bit of hope in here. And that's what Spielberg was going for. And, you know, while I am being the podcaster in the basement wagging his finger at one of the greatest living artists uh, of our time, I do also kind of hate some of the depictions of the Jewish characters when they are really into their money and their possessions and they're grabbing their diamonds and they're hiding them. And look, I get it. That's what anyone would do. Jewish, Christian, Muslim, maybe not a Buddhist. I don't know. But like most people would do that. If you're being driven out of your home, you would grab your stuff. You would want to make sure that you have things that, you know, are valuable monetarily, but also have sentimental value. I understand it. I get it. But there is just this 
pervasive, horrific stereotype that all we fucking care about is money and things. And we see dollar signs everywhere. And the shot of the Jews when the the Nazis are coming and they grab the diamonds and they put it in bread and they swallow the bread so they can keep the diamonds. I'm not saying that's inaccurate. I'm not saying it's wrong. But there is a part of me that's like, uh, Spielberg, did you have to put that in there? Is that necessary? Does that make the story better? Does it make the movie better? Like the fact that um Ben Kingsley's character is an accountant. Okay, fine. He's a Jew and he's an accountant and he's good at money. All right. That's a thing that happens in life. I guess it kind of falls under the stereotype, but eh, whatever. That's also true to life. You know, that that's what Schindler had an accountant. Actually, he had many accountants. Ben Kingsley's character is kind of an amalgamation of several people, but there was just a little too much of a focus on money and the Jews that did kind of bother me as a Jew. You know, I feel like Spielberg, you could have done without that. Um, I disagree. I think it's just something that uh, something that happened. I mean, if you hate Jews, any mention of money, you're going to focus on that. Sure. They basically think this extra ring here, this might be able to buy our ticket onto that uh, smuggle ship, or you just need something to trade. It says early in the film, trade is the only thing that's going to happen anymore. Money means nothing. I get what you're going for, but I think it was very important to show that family that have probably lived in this, you know, they lived in this mansion for, uh, you know, however many years or generations. And then they leave and they're in this uh, ghetto sharing with like a hundred other people in, in one room. And then right after that, they just give it to Oscar Schindler. And he's like, ah, let me test out the bed. And the next scene is like, you see him sleeping with this beautiful naked woman in their bed. And then you get go back to the those uh, formerly rich people. And these rich people still don't get it because they look at this room of like 100 people in that one room in the ghetto and they're like, it can't get any worse than this. And it's like, oh, you poor, poor souls. If you could only cash out for that being the worst you get. And these guys, even in the ghetto, Schindler is like, you know, basically twisting their arm to get uh, basically slave labor. Uh, he has to technically pay for the labor, but he pays the Nazis. He doesn't pay the Jews. So the Jews are working the slaves. Right. The Jews there are still like, sure, I still think we should get a percentage of the company. And Oscar Schindler's like, dude, where the fuck do you think you are? And I was taken out of that scene and really brought into another Spielberg film. I was really brought into 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when the Nazis go to Jordan and they're trying to bribe the uh, sultan or whoever it is to uh, let them use their lands and bring their tanks. And they show this treasure chest and they say, treasures donated by some of the finest families in Germany. And there's a Hanukkah menorah there. Like, this is a weird, like... Part B of, of this horrible thing that happens, you know, a few thousand uh, miles away. So let's talk a little bit about Schindler, because I didn't really remember a lot of the details. And I wasn't sure if Schindler was a good guy in the beginning or not. And it is very clear that no, no, in the beginning, he is not a good guy. And he really doesn't care about the Jews. He cares about making money. And that's fine. You know, you, you see him progress and you, you see his growth and everything. There was a little part of me that was like, wait a second. We've done a lot of movies on this podcast. We're nearing uh, 400 episodes. So we've seen a lot of these white savior movies. 
And I was like, wait, is that what this is? I was worried for a second because I was like, ugh, that's such a shitty trope. And I really hope that's not what this is. And I don't think it is, even though it does share some characteristics of those kinds of movies where there's a group that is being persecuted or oppressed and then someone outside of the group comes and saves them. That does happen in Schindler's List. But first off, you know, it's a historical figure and this is based on reality. It's not just cooked up by some screenwriter. Also, it has nothing to do with marketing. In a movie like uh, Dances with Wolves about Native Americans, yeah, we still need a big name actor to put butts in seats. We don't have a Native American actor who's going to do that. We'll just make the hero Kevin Costner. I don't think that was, you know, a factor in this movie at all. Even if you think, well, people don't like Jews. No one's going to see a movie starring Jews about Jews. Well, then you're going to make your protagonist an actual literal Nazi. That's not going to help you from a marketing standpoint. So I think that this movie does avoid a lot of those tropes, especially because in some of those other movies, the Native Americans or the black people or whoever is being quote unquote saved, they are given like the shit end of the stick in those movies. They get like a really great scene or two that shows who they are and what they're going through. And in Schindler's List, Spielberg spends time. He takes time with the Jews. We get to know these characters. We get to see their suffering. The liquidation of the ghetto scene. First off, I just, I hate that fucking word, liquidation. Talk about using nice language to sugarcoat something that's horrific. I feel like George Carlin would do a bit on it, but whatever. That scene goes on for like 15, 20 minutes. It doesn't have to. Spielberg could have just done a shorter version of it. He puts you in with the Jews. Schindler's like in that scene, kinda, you know, like he's up on the the hilltop or the mountaintop or whatever, watching everything. Riding a horse. <laughs> right, 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 right. But like he is there by proxy. Spielberg really puts you in with these Jews and you really feel the horror and the terror. And I did not grow up hearing these stories from family members. Uh, my son Eli became a bar mitzvah earlier this year. His bar mitzvah project was talking to a Holocaust survivor. And I went with him when he did the interview. And this man, Mayer, who is, I think, in his 90s at this point, was telling the story of being put in these ghettos, out of one ghetto into another ghetto. And it really seemed like we were watching Mayer's story. And we were, in in a sense. We're watching what really happened, and it's fucking horrific. I hate watching it, and it was really, really tough to see, but I appreciated that Spielberg took the time to leave Schindler, even though it's his movie, kind of leave him to the side for a bit and focus on the suffering that was happening. Then we do have those moments with Schindler sitting atop his horse and he sees the girl in the, the red overcoat. And, you know, that really helps change him and make him realize that it's not just an inconvenience. These people are not just something that's going to make him rich. They are human beings and... It's really, really fucking powerful. Did you happen to see what the uh, girl in the red coat symbolizes? 
Um, I have no idea what specifically she symbolizes. I just assumed it was, you know, in this cacophony of just hundreds of people being killed, it sort of desensitizes you to any one particular person. So I just thought he was just trying to focus on one particular person. And then the fact that you don't see her again until you just randomly see her body somewhere. I mean, I thought that was very powerful. It is. You're you're 100% right about all of it. The red girl that goes unnoticed when everyone should notice is a symbol of America and the Allies basically turning a blind eye and not doing anything when they really fucking could have. In a black and white world, there's a girl in a bright red coat you would think people would notice and she is unnoticed in the street just like these atrocities were happening in Germany and Poland and Europe and America very easily could have done shit, bombed, you know, the rail lines, bombed uh, some of these death camps, done something and just didn't. I didn't get that from watching the scene. My interpretation of it was exactly what you had said. But reading that I thought was really interesting. You know, I want to talk about uh, Ray Fiennes. It's kind of a famous uh, story about uh, one of the survivors, uh, Mila Pfeifferberg. She was introduced to Ray Fiennes on the set, and she started shaking uncontrollably as apparently his mannerisms and even the way they dressed him in his Nazi uniform, he looked like the real Amon Goth. And he was so good. I, I mean... That scene, which is one of the most uh, famous scenes in the, in the film, but when Schindler was trying to humanize Iman a, a little bit, and he's like, look, I'm going to explain to you what power is. It's not that these people fear us because we kill them, but he explains that I pardon you uh, when you could kill them, but you don't. That's real power. And Eamon, he doesn't get it at all. And there's a boy that uh, he's messed up something so trivial. Usually you're murdered for this. Uh, you, know, you can't get the stain out of the bathtub. And... Uh, uh, Iman goes, I pardon you. And the boy goes away. And, like it works for three seconds. And Iman's like, what the fuck am I doing? And he takes a sniper rifle and uh, kills the boy in the back of the head. Yes, you're right. Uh, Ray Fine's performance is is stunning. And from what I've read, Amon Goth in real life was a true psychopath. And there were criticisms about his portrayal in this movie that it's kind of making all the Nazis sort of seem like these horrific monsters and maybe Spielberg could have humanized some Nazis. And while I understand that criticism, there were fucking monsters and, and people like Amon Goth and Amon Goth was a real person. So depicting him in this way, I think is perfectly fair and valid and it gives the movie its movie villain, but also the real life story is that this guy was the fucking evil villain. And I do sort of appreciate that scene at the very end of the movie where Schindler is talking to the Jews and the Nazi guards after the war has been declared over. And he says to the guards, I know you have orders to kill all of the Jews in this room and you could, or you could just walk away and go home as men, not murderers. And then they all just choose to shrug their shoulders and leave. And part of me was like, well, do we know that they've never killed anyone? We know that they don't kill anyone in Schindler's factory because he's made that the rule. Maybe they did some other horrible shit before that. But even still, that is Spielberg showing that some of these German soldiers were just people. It, it's just adding nuance to the story. 
Well, I think he's trying to show that at the very end, there is this fog of war that lifts a little bit, and he gives them a choice. Do you want to be murderers or not? And, right. you know, probably six months earlier, they wouldn't have cared because there's this great line that Iman says to Helen where he says, you're not human on a technical level, but but still I have, you know, these, whatever he says, you know, something of a feeling for her. Right. He finds her attractive. There's a, there's a scene where a boy is running away from the line, and these two men men run over and another guy shoots with a rifle right between these two men and I, I read what the uh, translation of that was these two men are like screaming at the other guard like hey you piece of shit you could have hit us and the other guy's like hey whoa what I didn't and there's absolutely no regard at all for the fact that some boy just had a, you know his insides blown out it's like you almost hit me it, it's just the complete dehumanizing yeah. the Soviet who, who uh, liberates them and then Stern and the Jews are like where should we go and he's like uh uh, don't go east. They hate you there. You know what? Don't go west either. They hate you there too. Right. And with everything happening in the world right now, why does Israel exist? Because of that. That is why. You can't go east. You can't go west. We need a fucking homeland. We need a fucking country. We need an army so that we can defend ourselves because we are... 0.2% of the world's population, but everyone hates us. They hate us so very much. We are a tiny little speck of the world's population, and yet there is so much hatred towards us. And yeah, that line, that's a fucking gut punch because these people have been saved and nobody wants them. And Mayer, the, the Holocaust survivor that Eli interviewed, he kind of said something similar where it's like, okay, yeah, we're free. Hooray. Now what? There's nowhere to fucking go. Nobody likes us. Nobody wants the Jews. And, you know, you can make a bigger point about refugee crises in general that aren't about Jews, and that would definitely be true. But there is just that pervasive anti-Semitism that you, you can't escape it. You know, you can escape the Nazis. Yeah, you can go somewhere where people aren't going to gas you or shoot you in the head but they'll just, you know, spit on you or throw bricks in your window or do some other horrible things because they think that you control the world. Jesus fucking Christ. If we control the world, man, we'd be doing a shitty job for allowing this much fucking anti-Semitism. You know, if we were really in charge of everything, I think things would be pretty fucking different. Yeah, the entire struggle of the Jews kind of points back to uh, something from World War II. It was called the SS St. Louis. Do you know the story of the SS St. Louis? Al? Oh, right. That's the, the ship that uh, escaped yeah, the from ship, Germany exactly. and they went right. to America and every other country in the world, right? And, and no one would take them. Canada and, and Cuba and South America. No one would take them. But in the end, there was one country that would take them in the end. You know what country took them? I forget, is it Dominican Republic? No, no, no. This was unfortunately a cynical answer. The one, ge- oh, the one right. country Germany that took, took them back and they Germany. all died. Like 98% of them died. Like there were a couple that wound up by scattering, uh, uh, you know, that they survived. Jesus fucking Christ. And, and, you know, this can happen to anyone. Look at the killing fields of Cambodia and uh, Rwanda. I mean, these things happen in the former Yugoslavia and Armenia. I mean, these are all the last hundred years. This is all the last century. This is not ancient history. Right. I said before I didn't really remember a ton from this movie. I did remember the ending. And by ending, I mean 
two different things. I remembered the epilogue where everyone puts the the rocks on the gravestone of the real Oscar Schindler, and I remembered the scene before the the scene we were talking about. You know, uh, when Schindler says goodbye to all of the Jews that he saved, and he's crying. I remember that scene getting me the first time I saw the movie. It definitely got me last night. It's really, really powerful. It's powerfully written. It's powerfully acted by Liam Neeson and everyone who goes to embrace him and goes to hug him. And just this realization that he did so much, but maybe he could have done more. And I I feel like so many movies have a protagonist who starts off as kind of a shitty guy and then becomes a much better guy at the end. You know, that's like every movie ever. But in the beginning of Schindler's List, where you see Oscar Schindler schmoozing and whining and dining Nazis, proud to wear his little lapel pin, and then at the end, just breaking down crying because he couldn't save more Jews. Like, that is really, really fucking powerful. And then the epilogue where everyone's putting the rocks on his gravestone, that is a Jewish custom. Typically, we don't put flowers on graves. We do the rock as a sign of respect. I will admit, it took me a minute to get that it was the real person paired with the actor who portrayed them. Because at first, I thought it was their kids or grandkids. And I was like, wow, that lady's daughter looks a lot like the actress who played her in the movie. I was like, Oh, wait. No, no, no. Okay. Sorry. That is the actress. I thought that too. And I assume they looked alike because, oh, that's her granddaughter. Well, of course she's going to look like her. Right. But then it's like, but that's not really her. Okay. I'm <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't just me because I, I was a little bit confused. And then after like two or three, I'm like, oh, I get it. And it makes sense. And it helps, you know, the audience sort of identify in addition to the name text on screen okay, this was that character, and now here they are as an old person. I didn't understand that until I saw Ben Kingsley, and I felt like they should have showed Ben Kingsley first, maybe, because he's so recognizable, and they didn't choose to show Liam Neeson. He's apparently the person who throws the rose on Oscar's grave at the end, not Steven Spielberg. Yeah, Ben Kingsley doesn't appear earlier in that montage because the real Itzhak Stern had died. So he's with Mrs. Stern, who was still alive. And Mrs. Stern isn't in the movie, I don't think. Because I was kind of waiting for that character at some point to say, it's great that you're saving me. What about my wife? What about my kids? And judging from that last shot, he was married. Maybe he had kids. I don't know. But like probably for the efficiency of the plot and the script and everything, it was just easier to not write that in. Or he met her after the war. It could be like my grandfather. Uh, sure. You know, maybe his wife was killed or he didn't have a wife. And then, you know, the, these people are just kind of traumatized and they got together and, you know, tried to build their lives together again. Sure. I feel like a fucking idiot asking you this question, James, but I guess I should. Do you think Schindler's List stands the test of time? Uh, obviously, not only does it, but it's much more powerful to me than it was as a child. Of course, this holds up. It stands the test of time much more than it ever did. This just shows 
the horrificness of it and, and just the Spielberg's masterpiece of you know, trying to even put a little bit of hope. He puts a married couple, which I wouldn't have put in that film. I wouldn't have put any happiness in this film. But the way he masterfully does it just shows the madness of this. Of you know, This happened before. It could happen again. And uh, it will happen again. But just you know, maybe we can prevent some of them. So that's the brilliance of this film. It won Best Picture. This is one of these masterpieces of film and art that you wish never had to be made, but it did have to be made. Right. So uh, probably the stupidest question we've asked in 389 uh, episodes, uh, does Schindler's List stand the test of time, Al? Yes, of course it does. Not even a question, not even a maybe. And I've said similar things in other episodes. My God, wouldn't I love to be able to say, well, you know what, James? This movie kind of doesn't stand the test of time because there was that anti-Semitism back in the 90s and then we fixed it, we got rid of it, it's gone, and so now we don't need a movie like this. But unfortunately, that is not the world that we live in. I wish we didn't need these movies, but we do. And even kind of stepping back from the real-world anti-Semitism that exists 30 years later in 2023, this is a period piece. This is a historical drama. This happened. Yes, there are elements that are fictionalized and characters that are kind of melded together and not included and whatever, because that's just how movies work. But this is an important story to tell. I think it's a really sad and dark and horrific story in so many ways that are painfully obvious also it is a story of hope it is a story of redemption uh you know schindler's redemption is proof that there is good in the world that people can be cold and uncaring and develop a sense of humanity and care about other humans you use the word dehumanizing and i think that is really it that is what the nazis did it's what they continue to fucking do today and speaking as a jew who is also a human we're fucking humans and so is everyone in this movie and so is everyone on this planet whether you are jewish christian palestinian whatever you're a person you deserve the right to fucking exist. And what a fucking stupid statement. Why do I fucking have to say that out loud into a microphone? But this movie is a powerful, powerful reminder of that really simple, basic lesson. Uh, It is a masterclass in filmmaking. We kind of touched on some of the little details of, you know, how Spielberg made this movie, but um, it is just phenomenally constructed brilliantly edited uh you didn't even mention the john williams score you love talking about john williams score it's uh it is a brilliant score every little thing in this movie works of fucking course it stands the test of time i'm glad you mentioned john williams he won the music for best original score um a couple other people i have to mention on the uh, uh oscar wins. uh i mean we already mentioned best picture and best director steven spielberg best screenplay uh adapted screenplay but the film editing um that went to uh, a man named michael Kahn. um yeah. similar name to a friend of the show is he's done a lot of our uh episodes and finally I have been waiting 211 episodes to honor this man. 
Do you know who I'm going to honor? The final and seventh Oscar winner for Schindler's List, Al? Yes, I do. And only because yes, I you know do. you so well. The cinematographer from the stupid fucking Vanilla <laughs> Ice movie. Right. He was also the cinematographer on this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. That's right. Janusz Kaminski. This guy's won so many Oscars and now so many nominations. He's done like the most brilliant cinematography ever. And he did cool as ice. So... You cannot judge a, a an artist by a, you know a single piece of art they've done. Well, I, I, okay, there's some exceptions. That he, sometimes he can, but not Janusz Kaminski. Well, it was his first job, or maybe not his first, but like <laughs> we all have shit on our resume that we're embarrassed by. I'm just saying. <laughs> all right, we had to have something, something in the Schindler's List episode. Can we do something the opposite of Schindler's List next week? Uh, can we just do something fun? I really, 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 really need a break from this kind of film, Al. Yes. Next week, for our Christmas episode, we're going to be talking about Die Hard. That alone may be controversial, but we will talk about that, I'm sure. Next week, we have two special guests coming onto the show, both members of the Five Timers Club, Darren from Board Games Are For Losers and our friend Dom Monfrey. They're both going to join us to talk about Die Hard. And then we're going to talk about Die Hard 2, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Live Free or Die Hard. We're going to be talking about a lot of Die Hard. The next few episodes are going to be not as serious as this one was. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you for uh, spending this time with us and allowing us to kind of vent and talk about things that are frustrating and horrifying and sad. I realize this is not the normal, fun, lighthearted test of time episode. More of those are coming, though. And uh, we'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks for joining us.